The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. And they, Jesus and the disciples, came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing those things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people. For they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is God's word. Father, I just want to acknowledge as a preacher that nothing I can say in my own doing has any power. And so allow whatever words come out of my mouth to be because your spirit's power made it so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I didn't realize the power that I had as a professional counselor, which some of you know I served as a professional counselor for a few years before becoming a pastor in ministry. I didn't realize the power that my words had until I actually became a pastor. When in the pastoral office, I would hear someone describe an edict as if it came down from heaven with these words. My counselor said, my counselor told me, thus saith my counselor. (laughs) Talking with a husband who is contemplating leaving his wife. And as I'm laying out the biblical grounds for divorce that he did not have, I might hear him say, But my counselor said, I would marvel at the power behind the words coming from that person on the other side of the couch. It made me stop in my tracks as a pastor who does counseling from time to time with the power of my words to someone and where that power is coming from. Is it from me and my years of psychological education or street wisdom? Or is it coming from a word of wisdom far better, far greater than anything any human being could come up with themselves? Students, this is why in your papers you cite sources. You say where you came up with what you came up with. This is why it's so important to read the news or watch the news and ask, where are they getting their information? What is their source? This is why when a pastor preaches, you must listen for whether what he is saying is being ministered to you from the word of God or from some other place. Because from almost the beginning, from the fall of man, When we attempted to become like God, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, something very powerfully changed in that moment. What changed? As we look at this banner, the what is, what changed as it comes to the source? 
What's this? In the fall of man, we became the source of the knowledge of good and evil. Human wisdom would now attempt to determine what was good and what was bad. Anyone in a position of authority, whether it be a parent, a boss, a king, a president, a priest, media, began saying these words, because I said so, not because God said so. There's an exchange of power. I gotta admit, it feels good to be the source of power, doesn't it? In your judgment against someone else's sin, you eat a little power pellet of righteousness, don't you? When you can tell someone how off they are and how on you are, are it's, it's power trippy. And the scary thing is that the more power we're given, the more we're tempted to believe the lie that we are the source of that power and knowledge and that there is none beyond us. We want to hold that position of power. Hang on to it. Don't want to fall from that place because to admit that you don't know or to admit that you were wrong might jeopardize your position of power. Friends, that was the problem with the big three, we'll call them, in Mark 11. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They formed the inner circle of religious power that was called the Sanhedrin, which means the council. Think of them as you might think of our Supreme Court justices. They were given the power to make rulings through their interpretation of God's law and some extra biblical law of what was right and what was wrong, what was acceptable and what was unacceptable. These wise, learned men with long beards and decorated robes, the Sanhedrin. So just imagine some young guy in his early 30s walking into the lobby of their office, the temple, Pulling off the paintings off the wall, telling the receptionist, take a hike, turning the petty cash drawers upside down on the ground. Imagine that. They are right in asking, who do you think you are? They ask two questions, actually. By what authority are you doing these things? Meaning, what organization sent you to do this? And who gave you this authority? Meaning, who's the leader of that organization that sent you to do this? And today in Mark, we have been given permission to ask a similar question of Jesus that the big three were asking. What gives Jesus the power or the right to turn our lives around, to rearrange the furniture of our hearts, to take control of our lives, our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions? What gives Jesus the right? Well, where does Jesus point them and where does he point us, friends, this morning? Well, in the passage, he goes to John's baptism. Why does he go there? Because John's baptism is the starting point of the gospel of Mark. And it's the thesis statement as to who Jesus is. This is Mark's beginning phrase of his gospel. 
the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And John the Baptist's role as prophet was to prepare the way for the Son of God, for the Lord, for the King, to proclaim a need for repentance. We all are messed up. He's coming. We've got to get things right again. And so he's proclaiming, John the Baptist, this promise of forgiveness. And people are coming in droves to be baptized, to repent of their sin. And John the Baptist even says, this one who's coming, I I, I can't even consider myself worthy to tie his shoe. He's that powerful. But more importantly than this need for repentance that John was proclaiming, do you all remember what happened immediately after John baptizes Jesus? Here's what Scripture says in Mark. Right after Jesus was baptized by John. The heavens were torn open and the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. And an audible voice came from heaven and said this, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. That statement, a voice came from heaven, which the originally, original audience would never say a voice from God because they don't use God's name out of respect for that name. They would instead say from heaven. But really, that voice came from God saying, this is my beloved son. It was the ultimate power of attorney statement that God the Father was making toward his son. He can sign my checks. <laughs> what he says, it's as if it's from me. So the answer to these two questions that the authorities are answering, by what authority? Heaven. And by whom in heaven? God himself. John's baptism says who Jesus is and what authority he's coming with. What gives Jesus the power or right to turn our lives around? It's because Jesus has been given the power of all powers from the source of all powers. He is God himself. And so therefore, we are called to yield to his power over our entire lives, friends. What does the scripture say, especially in Mark 11, that we're to yield to? Where are we saying, instead of my counselor said, instead Jesus said, where are we declaring what Jesus says? Well, in this passage, we see three primary rights of control that we're giving Jesus. That's what power is all about. Power is the right to control something or someone. What are the three rights of control that this passage is highlighting for us that we're giving to Jesus? Well, they're all rooted in his love for us. The first power that we're giving Jesus, the right to control, is the power to intercede for us. The second is the power to lead us. And third, the power to plead for us. First, the power to intercede for us. How does Jesus intercede? Look with me at verses 27 and 28. 
Jesus is back in the temple after probably the day before clearing it from being a prophet center for the Jews to being a prayer center for all the nations. And this temple, as Ron preached last week, was a place of intersection. The temple was a visible place where heaven met earth, where God and man could be in relationship with one another. How did the temple communicate that? How could God and man be in relationship to one another? You'd see it in the temple through sacrifice. The people coming upon the temple would acknowledge their sin before the Lord. And they would bring an offering before the Lord. And the people would sacramentally place their hand on the perfect offering to be sacrificed. Saying, my sin is now put onto them. And then that sacrifice would be burned up. Which would soothe Yahweh's anger against our sin. And scripture said, would become a pleasing aroma. That sacrifice, that smell of that smoke. Like Texas brisket. Would be like a pleasing aroma to him. Pleasing. Do you remember that word in John's baptism? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is the pleasing sacrifice right here. The temple throughout the ages was to be the placeholder where God could and would be pleased with a guilty people. And Jesus is cleansing the temple of what's offensive to God and he's filling it with himself. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they are inflamed that someone could take charge of their place of worship, mess around with their sacrificial system. But every time Jesus stepped foot in the temple, he was declaring himself, I'm the perfect lamb. I'm here to bring cleansing, forgiveness, sacrifice for these people so that God, you can be pleased with them. The temple officials They deemed themselves powerful to make rulings over the people. But they really couldn't intercede for the people. Jesus was declaring a good news of a not guilty verdict for the people. For the people then. For the people now. He was interceding for us in the temple. Intercession, one author writes is when a third party comes between two others and makes a case to one on behalf of the other. And Hebrews 7.25 says this about Jesus. Jesus always lives to make intercession for his people. Jesus is offering himself as an intercession for the people. Kids, I know it's a little bit of an older reference, but do you remember the movie Frozen with Anna and Elsa? There's a great scene in that movie of intercession, right? At the end of that movie, when Elsa is being threatened by this enemy who's wielding a sword ready to bring down his judgment upon her. What does Anna do? She demonstrates true sacrificial love by putting herself between the sword and herself getting sacrificed for the sake of her sister. That's what Jesus is doing in bringing intercession for us. 
Friends, this is true of Christ to us. And it's true of Christ in us. Saints, Christ lives to intercede for you. Right now, He is making intercession for you. Right now, He is pleading His sacrifice, His wounds on your behalf. Right now, that sinful thought that's running through your head, right now, maybe, or yesterday, or in the next two minutes, right now, Jesus is going, my wounds for that, my wounds for that. He is doing this all the time for his people. My wounds for that. When you know you're sinning and when you don't, he is powerfully interceding for you. He's turning his father's eyes away from your sin and towards his sacrifice. Do you find comfort in that? That all the time Jesus is living to do that, loving to do that. Or are you going at your own sin without him? Through your willpower, I won't ever do it again. Or through the power of positive thinking, it won't work. Let him powerfully do the work of interceding for you. But also, let his interceding power be at work in you as you intercede for others. Pray for those who persecute you. That's intercession. Ask God to spare your worst enemy. God hears those prayers of intercession. You're not changing God's mind by praying for your enemy. You're instead sharing in God's posture, in God's heart. As he lives to intercede for you, so you too can live to intercede for other people. Christ have the power to intercede in our lives. Not only that power, Christ has also been given the power to lead. Look with me at verses 29 to 30. Jesus responds to their question, who gives you the right with a question? Classic counselor move, right? Ask him a question, he'll ask you a question right back. All right. And he says, I will ask you one question, but actually he says, I will ask you one logos. I will ask you one word. Answer me. (laughs) You see his authority in this. Then I will tell you where my power comes from. Cite the source of John's baptism. Where'd that come from? From heaven? Remember, from God or from man? Answer me. What do you notice about Jesus's leadership here? We might think he's powering up to feel important, but that's not his heart. We might think he's dodging the question. That's not his heart. He's actually leading them by serving them the answer. Impressing upon them the need to answer the answer with the answer. He's leading to them to what was present at John's baptism. Authority given to him. For them to admit they were wrong. To admit that their hearts were hard toward Jesus. His kindness, as Romans 2 describes, is leading them right now in that question he asks them to repentance, to say we were wrong. His insistence to answer him is not a power move of intimidation. It's a power move of invitation. Answer me, answer me, answer me. What do you think? In my work as a pastor and a counselor, I've seen how important it is to strike while the iron is hot, 
when people are at a place of seeing or admitting their brokenness. Wisconsin nice says to leave the people alone when it gets uncomfortable. (laughs) But Jesus' leadership says, no, lean into people when it gets uncomfortable. Because our default is to take the road of delay or deflection, not repentance. But he's leaning in and saying, what is the answer? Answer me. Can you see it? Can you admit you were wrong? I may have told you this, but my wife and I have a tradition in our family. When one of us is wrong, that we must say these words. You were right. I was wrong. It's a kindness, usually, in our family. Because the naming of wrongdoing is done in kindness. It actually serves us to be able to say, I was wrong. I was wrong. If the Sanhedrin... And if we say we're wrong and you're right, then Christ will tell us where his power comes from. We will see him take that confession of wrongdoing and he'll lead us directly to the power of the cross. But if we refuse to admit we're wrong, then that unspoken, unanswered sin remains on our heads or remains on the Sanhedrin's heads. Friends, who in your life right now is loving enough to invite you to wave your hands and admit you're wrong so they can put you into the hands of Christ? Is there someone in your life right now that is saying, answer me, answer me, and you're stiff-lipped with them? Nope, nope, not going to admit it. Admit Christ is from God. And God is a God first of mercy and love. Because when you admit you're wrong, he can lead you to the place of forgiveness where you can repent of your wrong. The other way Christ's power works in leading us is, friends, are you leading others to see their sin? Not so you can feel righteous, but so that you can take them to the one who can make them righteous. Give up Wisconsin nice when you see sin. Ask Jesus to give you the power to call sin, sin. And to lead people like his kindness did for you to the love found in Jesus interceding on the cross. Jesus has the power to intercede. He has the power to lead. And finally, he has the power to plead. Look at the last few verses, 31 to 33. The Sanhedrin, the big three, they have this little timeout meeting in the corner of the temple to figure out a plan. How do we answer this question? Clearly, they're not interested in his kindness. (laughs) They're not interested in admitting they're wrong. Mark tells us in other places in the gospel, they're actually interested in putting him to death. And they strategize their answer knowing he has them cornered. Both answers could lead to their death. (laughs) The first answer to say from heaven means that they would have to put to death their old ways of doing things. They'd have to put to death themselves and they're being right, and have to admit, no, Jesus is right. But the second, to say from man, means the mob will do them in, because it will fly in the face of what everyone has believed about John, that he is a prophet from God. So they're about holding on to their power position. They're about ignoring the kindness of God, and guess what option they choose? They choose option C, the ignorance option. They respond with, we don't know. 
And that response is not altogether true. More accurately, what they are saying is, we are unwilling to know. We are refusing to know. And Jesus, in direct judgment of their ignorance and their hard-heartedness, what does he give them? Silence. He gives them no answer. You see, Jesus was willing to plead for them. How? How was Jesus willing to plead? By himself receiving the silence of God for them. God's judgment, which responds to any unrepentant sinner with this, a cold shoulder, a depart from me, I don't know you. That's how God responds to unrepentance. And Jesus experienced those words on the cross, didn't he? As he shouted out words from Psalm 22. He received the penalty of God's cold shoulder as he screamed, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forgotten me? Why have you turned your back on me? Why are you not answering me? He received that for us. But instead, the Sanhedrin, in their refusal, in their ignorance, in their choosing to receive the judgment of God onto themselves, they denied Jesus' offer to plead for them. They believed it was better to keep what they had now, their pride, their power, in exchange for what would come later, their humiliation and their judgment. In Jesus refusing to answer their question, he makes a forewarning of judgment to them. You are choosing right now the unforgivable sin. You are denying the one who is offering you help and substitution and someone to plead for you. I won't tell you what authority I cleanse the temple with because you are unwilling to be cleansed yourself. And it will cost you the excruciating silence of God found in his hottest cold shoulder, which is called hell. Where are you behaving as the Sanhedrin? They took the calculated and costly risk of attempting to plead before God on their own. You're not going to stand. You will hear only the silences of God's penalty against your sin as he speaks the words, Guilty, I know you not. But in Christ, it's completely different. In Christ, if that's what you're pleading, Him, what He did, what He did for me, then what you will hear is, Welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. The invitation of God will be a response from heaven. Eternal life is yours. My kids and I just started watching uh, the latest uh, Marvel series, Moon Knights. Committing another 12 hours of our lives to the Marvel factory. But one scene that's been in the, at least the first episode of Moon Knight, I find very powerful. There's this cult leader named Arthur Harrow who has on his arm scales of judgment tattooed. And people can, he invites people to come and receive the judgment of the goddess Amat, the Egyptian goddess, over their life and how they've lived. 
And so they come before this guy who has this tattoo and put their hands out to him and the tattoo starts to move and give judgment of how their life was. The scales of judgment fall. And in one scene, a woman comes, I'm ready to do this. And he says to the woman, as the scales move and they turn red and hot, he says to this woman, your life is unrighteous. And she falls dead in that moment. That picture of judgment, even though it's a Marvel series, is all of us apart from Christ. That is all of us apart from Christ, falling dead. But Christ offers to intercede Christ offers to lead us to the cross. Christ offers to plead the silence of God on our behalf. So that if we're holding out Him to the Lord, what the scales will say is, welcome home. Let's give Christ that power, that authority to intercede, to lead, and to plead for us saints. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would do your work of interceding for us. You live to intercede. Right now you are interceding for us. I thank you, Father, that you have led us to understand who Christ is. But I acknowledge, Lord, there are those here even among us that may not know who you are and what you've done. I pray, Lord, that you would make your power clear that you are well pleased with Jesus and no one else. So that when we stand before you, may we plead him and no one else. Not our works, not anything we could have done, but only the work that Christ has done on our behalf. May we plead that. Thank you for receiving the judgment, the penalty, the death for us. And we pray, Father, that we would find in Christ life and answer and eternity. It's in his name we pray. Amen.